Welcome to the Center Ranch Church Weekly Podcast. We believe that faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Thanks so much for checking out the podcast. Here's this week's message. Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Thank you so much for being here. I'm excited that you're here. Excited to start a brand new series this morning. Before we jump into that, I want to take a minute and talk about what just happened at the end of of worship. If you're new to our church or maybe new to people who believe like we do, then that might have been something abnormal to have a moment where it seems like there's a lull in the service and to have somebody begin speaking out. But if you read the Bible, you read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, you see those kinds of things are talked about in the early church and are are a part of the church when the Holy Spirit is moving and active and that's some of the the gifts of the Spirit that the Bible talks about that one of those gifts is when people give messages in tongues and then there's an interpretation that follows. So when somebody begins to speak out like that and the Holy Spirit is is prompting them to do it, then it's a time for the rest of us to listen and to, to weigh and to check our own spirits about what's being said. Just because somebody starts speaking out loud in the middle of the service doesn't mean that it, it's necessarily God and we're just going to accept everything. That's why you've got the same spirit that, that, that's operating on the inside of them. If you've got questions about that, I'd be glad to talk with you, kind of explain through Scripture where those kinds of things are found, if that made you uncomfortable or anything like that. just want to give you the, the Bible verses of why that's why that is normal and something that should be happening in the body of Christ. Amen? So excited that you are here. Excited again. We're starting a brand new series. And all of the series that we do, we, we obviously do them because we think it's important stuff to talk about. We pray about it. We, we take time to plan out different, different series. And we, we base all of them on the Word of God. So it, it's all important and good stuff to talk about that we should be learning and growing and advancing in all these different areas. When we talk about prayer like, like we just did, we talk about the Holy Spirit, when we talk about holiness, when we talk about marriage and relationship, all, all great things to learn about. And it's one of the reasons I love the Word of God, because God's Word addresses so many different areas. It talks about how we handle our finances. The the Word of God is light, and the entrance of His Word, the Bible says, brings light. So we can apply that light or shine that light really on every area of our life and get revelation from God. So it's all good, but this series that we're beginning this morning is, is special because we're talking about what is the most important thing in the heart of God. God's number one priority above everything else. This, this is different. This, this stands alone. And it should be important to us, those of us who claim to serve God. When we say we serve God, I'm serving the Lord, that doesn't just mean that we come to church. That, that doesn't just mean that once a week we put on nice clothes and meet up with a bunch of, of buddies. It doesn't just mean that we identify ourselves as Christians. Really to serve the Lord means that we serve his interests, what's on his heart. If I'm his servant, then what matters to him, I should be concerning myself with carrying out his desires. That, that's what it really means to be a servant of, of the Lord. So we're going to take the next several weeks and talk specifically about seeing people who don't know Jesus 
come to know Jesus and the role that we play, evangelism, reaching the lost, carrying out, carrying out the mission that God has given us as a church and the church at, at large. And again, it's the number one priority in the heart of God. One of the most important things that we could talk about. Reaching the lost, people not going to hell, making it to heaven, is the most important thing to God. Let me read to you from John 3.16. Familiar passage to most of us. John 3.16 says this, For this is how much God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. It's talking about the reason behind God sending his Son, Jesus, to the earth. We know it's because God loves us. He loves you. He loves me. But what was that love causing him to be concerned with? It didn't say that he sent his son so that you and I could have a prayer language. That's important, but that's not what it says. It didn't say that he sent his son so that you and I could have healthy, strong families and marriages. That, that, that's important. But ultimately, the, the reason that God sent Jesus was because God cares where you and I spend our eternity. That's what was on his heart, that you and I could have, that we could have the opportunity to enjoy eternal life, eternal fellowship with God. And in that passage, it lets us know the only other alternative to eternal life is that we would perish. And when it says perish, it's talking about eternal damnation, being put in, in hell forever and ever. Hell is eternal. Hell is forever. And it's in the heart of God that nobody would ever have to go there. And the way that he made it possible that you don't have to go there is by sending Jesus to become, to become a sacrifice for our sin. It's the, the most extreme thing that God has ever done. And the reason he did it, ultimately, is because he cares where you spend eternity. He did it so that people could be saved. It's the most important thing in the heart of God, that people would be saved, that people could come to know him through a relationship with Jesus Christ. So Jesus came in obedience to the Father. He came, took on flesh, came and walked among us. In his own heart, in his own mind, what was Jesus' reason for being here? What was his, his purpose or his, his mission? It tells us in Luke chapter 19, verse 9, as Jesus is talking to Zacchaeus, he says, the Son of Man came, and he says in his own words the, the reason that he came. He didn't say the Son of Man came to, to cure some people of leprosy. That, that was good. He did that. That was important. But that ultimately, that was not the sole reason, the ultimate reason for him coming. He didn't say the Son of Man has come so I could multiply fish and loaves. He, he did that multiple times. That was a good thing that he did. There's a lot we can learn from that. That's not why he said he came. He said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That, that was his, that's in his mind, in his heart. That's why I'm here. I've got one primary uh, objective to accomplish, to seek and to save the lost. That, that's why Jesus came. When the Holy Spirit came, Jesus said, wait for the outpouring of the promise of the Father. Wait for the Holy Spirit. Why? Not, not so that we could get slain in the Spirit. Not so that we could get goosebumps and chills. Those things are fine. We're for those things. But he said, you'll receive power so that you can 
be witnesses so that we can tell people that that is the number one priority in the heart of God. He cares about everything, but number one is that people would not go to hell, but they could spend eternity in fellowship with God. You and I were made for fellowship with God. All people were made not, not to go to hell. God didn't create hell for people. He never wanted people to go there. It was a punishment for the devil. That's where the devil is going, but the devil is working to take as many people as possible with him to that eternal destination. But God wants everyone to know him and have fellowship with him forever. That was the number one reason God sent his son. It's the number one reason Jesus came. It's the reason we're, we've been given the Holy Spirit. It's the reason that you and I are here. The reason that you and I are on earth right now is the same reason that Jesus came. Those of us who know him, we've been given a mission. Why, why don't we just get beamed up the minute we say the sinner's prayer? We, we, Lord, I accept you as my, my Lord and Savior, all of a sudden gone, right? You're just taken up to heaven and enjoy your mansion because we, we've been given an assignment. Jesus said to his disciples before he left them, he said, in the same way the Father sent me, so I send you. What, what was that? To seek and to save the lost. Jesus passed the baton to disciples, to you and I. Now, I'm giving you the same mission I received from the Father. I'm sending you out to do the same thing, to have the same focus, to seek and to save that which is lost. In Matthew 28, the great commission, he was giving you and I our mission, our reason for being, to go into all the world, to preach the gospel, to make disciples of all nations. That, that is our assignment. The reason that we are here as individuals, the reason that we're here as a church, there's lots of great things that we can do, but the number one priority is to see people who don't know Jesus and are on their way to hell, to rescue them, to tell them the good news about Jesus, to give them an opportunity to come to know God the Father, and there's only one way, through relationship with Jesus, through accepting Jesus as Savior. It's the reason we have the mission we do as a church family, not just to have a nice little slogan to put on the wall, to keep us oriented in the right direction, connecting people with the newness of life that's found only in Jesus Christ. We are here to be like Jesus that we would carry out his mission. Do you know it's impossible for us to be Christ-like and to not be concerned with the lost? Jesus said, the reason I'm here is to seek and to save the lost. You can't be like Jesus and have your life oriented by a, a different set of priorities. Jesus' whole thing was about seeking and saving the lost. So if you and I want to be Christ-like, what would Jesus do? How would Jesus handle this situation? It is impossible for someone to be Christ-like and not be concerned with the lost. If you're not concerned with the lost, you, you are not Christ-like. So we're talking about the number one thing in the heart of the Father. People, people were made for fellowship with God. People were not made to go to hell. Now, that's important. Someone once told me that the main thing is keeping the main thing the main thing. That's the main thing. You've got to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is reaching the lost, spreading the gospel, advancing the kingdom of God. There's lots of good things. We've got to keep the main thing the main thing. Because even in the church, people can get distracted by different things and find something that's good, but make a mistake of making it most important and getting things all out of alignment. There's people that get very concerned in the body of Christ with, with different things. And, and it's good as long as it's in the right priority. People get very focused on demonic activity and, and casting demons out and detecting evil spirits. That, that, that's good when, it, when it's necessary, but that shouldn't be our prime objective. There are some people that are only interested in prayer. 
That's all they want to talk about, all they want to do. And we, we pray. We just spent a month and a half talking about prayer. We're pro-prayer. But that's not the main thing. People that get obsessed with prosperity. We believe in prosperity. That's, that's not the reason that we're here, is just to accumulate wealth. The main thing is to make sure that people have an opportunity to know Jesus. That, that, that is the main thing. And again, you get yourself in a dangerous place when you find something important in the word of God, but then make it the most important. The number one priority is seeing the lost become found. Reaching, reaching the lost. If you were at our business meeting a couple of weeks ago, our annual business meeting, I, I read from Psalm 133. And that psalm, that psalm says how good and how pleasing or how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Talking about the people of God, how it pleases God, how it's beneficial to us when we are in unity, when we are unified. It goes on to talk about it's like oil being poured out. It begins to flow down over a person. It's talking about the anointing and the moving of the Holy Spirit. When people are in genuine unity, it creates a unique environment where the Spirit of God can move and do things in people's lives and have his way. That, that atmosphere is unity. It's a blessing. It goes on to talk about it's a, it's a place of refreshing and renewing our strength. Instead of people serving the Lord, they're weary and they're worn out and, and being a Christian is just a drudgery. When you're walking in unity, it's, it's a unique environment where God can refresh people and keep them strong and, and vibrant and in love with the Lord. It says that that is the environment where God can command his blessing. So we talked about, I want that kind of blessing. I want that kind of moving of the spirit. I want that kind of refreshing for me and for you. So let's work for complete unity. And we talked about how there's different levels of unity. There's a shallow unity that looks good on the surface. That we have a level of unity just by nature of the fact that we live in the same area. We go to the same church. There's certain things that we're all kind of have an interest in. We have, all have an interest in God. That, that is a shallow unity. That passage is talking about a deep unity. When you've got people that their heart beats for the same thing, that we're living our lives, spending our lives, we would lay down our lives for the same thing. A deep, a deep, real, a real unity. So if we're going to pursue that kind of unity, we might as well unify ourselves around the thing that's at the core of the heart of the Father. If we're going to unify ourselves, we might as well unify around a passion to reach the lost and see the kingdom of God advance. We might as well unify as a church around a mission that has to do with connecting people with the newness of life that's only found in Jesus Christ. We might as well unify around a vision to see the body of Christ grow and get stronger. Right now, that our vision is to be, be 1,000 strong. It's just about seeing the body of Christ grow. More people come to know the Lord because there is a, there's like a snowball effect. We want to make great impact. So the more people you have working together, the more people you can reach. And once you add them and they're on board and they're working for the same thing, then you can make even more impact. And it just begins to snowball. What kind of impact could we have in a community if we had a large group of well-resourced, unified people that are serious followers of Jesus, they're not playing games. It's not a joke to them. It's not some fringe thing that they're slightly interested. They're serious followers of Jesus. A large group, well-resourced, unified, serious followers of Jesus. What, what kind of impact could they have on a community? What kind of impact could they have on a region? 
I don't know. But there's one way to find out is to, to create a large, well-resourced group of people that are unified and serious about following Jesus. It's what they live for. It's what they understand. I am on earth right now to see that lost people have an opportunity to know Jesus. We rally around that point. Let's find out what kind of impact we can have. Let's see how many people we can reach. Let's see how we can bring glory to the Father by, by bringing in a harvest of lost souls. That, that, that's, why, that's why we are here. Amen? If you, if you have your Bible, turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. This morning as we start this series, I just want to lay a little bit of foundation for us to build on in the next couple of weeks. Just to kind of give some, some heart for this series. So we'll look at a few different passages this morning as we begin. Second Peter chapter three, starting in verse one, it says, this is my second letter to you, dear friends. And in both of them, I've tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. I want you to remember what the holy prophet said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. We'll keep reading, but right off the bat in this chapter, he's saying, listen, I'm writing to you again. And one of the things I want you to do or I want to do or accomplish in this letter is I want to remind you. I want to stimulate your memory. Things that you already know, things that you already heard. Yeah, yeah, we've heard that before. I want to stir it up again. I want to bring it back to the surface. So what we're talking about in this series, it probably isn't a huge, a huge revelation to you if you've been serving the Lord at, at, for any length of time at all. Oh, we're supposed to evangelize. Oh, okay. Oh, we're supposed to tell people. Oh, people are going to go to hell unless they know Jesus. That's probably things you've heard before, but it's important for us to be reminded. It's important for us to re-sow that seed and to, to let it surface in our heart again. So he's saying, listen, I, I know I'm just reminding you of this, but it's important to remind you of this. It's not that we can't figure out anything else to talk about. It's that this needs to be front and center and, and on the top of our hearts. He continues verse three, most importantly, I want to remind you. There he goes again. He's reminding us that in the last days, scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. He's saying that there's coming a time where people will scoff. They'll roll their eyes. They'll make light of the notion that Jesus is coming again, that they will be intentional about trying to get you to question that reality. Is he really coming? Am I really in the last? Is this really the final hours? And they'll, they'll work to try to stir up doubt and to bring it into question. People, didn't your grandparents say that? Don't you remember your parents saying, this is the last, Jesus is coming back? And he hasn't yet. So maybe this whole urgency thing, it doesn't need to be that urgent. It's just people will deliberately do that. Try, try to stir up. And you know people that do that. It says that in the last days that'll happen. So just by nature of you knowing people that do that, that's a sign that we're actually living in the very times that they're denying. It's a, it's a sign. In the last times, people will scoff, roll their eye. Okay, yeah, Jesus is coming back. I've heard that before. Let, let that be a red flag. Okay, I'm closer. I'm close. I know that I'm close just by your, your flipping attitude about, about his return. From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. 
Verse five, they deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command, and he brought forth the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth are being stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. He says that God, God is involved in the world. People deny that. People downplay it. That's why people push off the notion that he's returning. They're, they're trying to give themselves license to live for what's temporary, just to live for the here and now. If I, if I can deliberately forget that Jesus is coming, if I can deliberately forget that God is the one who created the earth, that this is all his, then it gives me license just to live according to my sinful nature. He says people deliberately forget that God, God is involved. He's the one that spoke the earth into existence. This is his earth. This is his world, literally. This is his world. He created it. It's, it all belongs to him. And he's free to intervene at any point he wants. He's free to do what he likes. And then he brings up the story of the flood. He's done it before. He's intervened to the point where he destroyed everyone but one single family. And you know what? He's going to do it again, this time with fire, where all ungodly people will be destroyed. He's reminding us God intervenes, that this is his, it belongs to him, and he's going to have his way. He continues, verse, verse 8. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone, he wants everyone to repent. So he says, listen, when it comes to time, Number one, you have to understand God doesn't see time the way that you and I see time. A thousand years is like a day. A day is like a thousand years. He's saying it's just different. He has a totally different perspective on time than we do from our limited human human perspective. He, He sees it completely differently. And it says that God's not being slow, as some people think. Some people say that he's being slow about his promise. Listen, that was like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago that Jesus said that he's, he's coming back. He's not being slow. What is he being? He's being patient. He's not being slow. He's being patient. It's not that God is bad at carrying out his promises. It's that he is good at giving us opportunities. That we, he said he's coming back. He's faithful. He's going, he's going to come back. Let me read to you from James chapter 5. It says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and the latter rain. It says that Jesus is coming back soon. The husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth. Be patient. He's being patient with long, with long patience. Jesus is going to come back. The Bible tells us Jesus is going to come back. Jesus said, I'm going to come back. The angels that were there that day when Jesus disappeared in the clouds said, what are you guys looking at? He's going to return the same way, the same way that he left. 
Paul wrote to us and said, Jesus is going to come back. James wrote and said, Jesus is going to return. Jude wrote and said, Jesus is coming again. John wrote and said, he's coming again soon. Jesus said, he's coming back soon. He's coming again. Then what, what is the holdup? What is he waiting for? Why has it been so long? If he's coming, why hasn't he come already? Well, those two passages, let's let us know what he's waiting for. Why hasn't Jesus returned? If he's coming, what, what is the problem? Why are you waiting so long? Is he waiting for us to perfect a church service? Is he waiting for us to write all the worship songs that could be written? Is he waiting for us to cast out all the demons or to fill out all of our Bible reading plans? What is he waiting for? It says the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth. He's not willing that any would perish. He's being patient, he says, for our sake so that we would have opportunity to see more people come to know Jesus. That, that is the reason that Jesus has not returned because he has a heart that nobody would go to hell. He wants to give as many opportunities as possible for people to come into relationship with him through Jesus. And if that's what, that, that is why we have time. Why Jesus hasn't ended anything is so that we can preach the gospel, that we can reach the lost. Think about that for a moment. That means that is why we have today. The only reason we have today and Jesus hasn't returned is so that we can be evangelistic. The only reason you had yesterday, the only reason you had last year, the reason Jesus didn't come back before that, not so that you could build your 401k, not so you could take that one last trip to Myrtle Beach. The reason we have time, there's nothing wrong with those things, but we've got to understand the reason we have time so that we can reach the lost. That's it. It's the reason we have time. If you're a believer, the reason we're still here, he's waiting. The reason it hasn't been destroyed with fire yet, he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to repent, to turn from sin and to come into a relationship with himself so we can spend eternity, eternity in heaven instead of in hell. So if that's why we have time to reach the lost, then it seems like wisdom to use the time we have for the reason that we have it. Right. We would use our time to reach the lost. And this is serious to God. This is not some side issue. The number one priority in the heart of the Father. If you want to capture the attention of someone, begin to love what they love. If you want to capture, even just earthly speaking, if you know someone that's very important, and you want to capture their heart, capture their attention, begin to love what they love. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, we'll start reading in verse 11 says, the crowd was listening to everything Jesus said, and because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. He said a nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Before he left, he called together 10 of his servants and divided among them 10 pounds of silver, saying, invest this for me while I'm gone. But his people hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we do not want him to be our king. We'll keep reading, but Jesus is telling a story. It's important for us to pick up on the parallels of the story. He says that there's this nobleman 
that went away to a distant land and that he was going to return after he'd been crowned king. He would return as a king in all his majesty. What what in the world is he talking about? He's talking about himself. He's talking about the period of time we're in now, that he's gone away someplace distant and he's going to come back. And when he comes back, he's coming back as a a mighty king. He's coming back crowned, ready to rule, ready to, to reign. He went away and he's coming back. As king. But it says before he left, he did something. He, he invested something in his servants. He gave his servants treasure. He gave them something valuable that when he comes back, he's going to hold them accountable for what they did with it. He gave them something precious and said, Guys, invest this for me while I'm gone. While I'm gone, I want you to do something with what I'm entrusting you with. Now, we can read parables like this and apply it to our natural abilities and our talents. And that's a fine application. You've got the ability to sing, use that talent, develop it, do something with it. That's a good application. We apply it to our finances. I need to be a good steward of what God has entrusted me with. That's a good application. It's appropriate to be good stewards. We should do that. But what is the most precious treasure that Jesus has given us? The most precious treasure is not your ability to, to sing or juggle or whatever, whatever it is that you have the ability to do. The most precious thing he entrusted us with as believers is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said we have this treasure in jars of clay, in, in earthen vessels. It is a treasure. The gospel, the Bible says, is the power of God to save to the uttermost. That is the most precious thing that he could entrust with us. So he has entrusted us with it and he expects a return. He entrusted trusted us with it and said, I want you to invest this. I want you to sow it. I want you to multiply it. I want it to, I want it to be fruitful. It's the great commission, right? Go and make disciples of all nations. Go and tell all creatures, proclaim the gospel. That's what we've been instructed to do, that we are the servants. We've been entrusted with the precious gospel, the power of God that can save someone, that can reorient their life instead of on their way to hell. Now they're on their way to heaven. You and I have been given it as ambassadors to do something with it. And so that's the parable Jesus is telling. The last verse we read, it said, some people, some people said, no, we don't, we don't want this guy to be our king. We reject him. I don't, want, I don't want him telling me what to do. I don't want to live and have to obey this guy. And we know there's some people that live that way today, that have that attitude. Even people, even people that would claim to be in his kingdom have that attitude. I don't, I don't, want, I don't really want to submit to this guy. Now, yeah, I'll pray the prayer and everything. I don't know about really living as he's Lord. Lord means master, king. You're, you're in charge. I am a servant. I do what you want me to do. There are some people who say, I, I mean, I like the idea of the benefits of it. I, I reject him as king of my life. Then, then he continues. He continues. Verse 15, after he was crowned king, he returned and called in the servants to whom he had given the money. He wanted to find out what their profits were. The first servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made 10 times the original amount. Well done, the master exclaimed. The king exclaimed. You are a good servant. You've been faithful with the little I entrusted to you. So you will be governor of 10 cities as your reward. The next servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made five times the original amount. Well done, the king said. You will be governor over five cities. So two of the servants come back and they report, listen, you, you gave us something precious. We did what you said. 
We invested it and, and it multiplied. It grew and his response is well done. You are a good servant. Thank you for doing what I asked you to do. And he rewards them for it. That's the, that's the kind of response we want. When Jesus returns, when we stand before him and he examines us, we're held accountable. What did you do with the treasure I entrusted you with? That we, we can say, here's what I did. We can be excited instead of ashamed. Because listen to the story of this next servant. Verse 20, it says, but the third servant brought back only the original amount. He said, master, I hid your money. I kept it safe. I was afraid because you were a hard man to deal with, taking what isn't yours and harvesting crops that you didn't plant. You wicked servant, the king roared. Your own words condemn you. If you knew that I'm a hard man who takes what isn't mine and harvests crops I didn't plant, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some, some interest on it. So when he comes to this third servant, the third servant says, I, I, I actually, I took the treasure that you gave me, but I didn't do what you told me to do. It puts him in the category of the people that say, I, I don't want him as king. I don't want to submit to what you tell me to do. I know what you're saying. I hear you, but I'm going to kind of do my own thing. I'm just going to kind of do what I want and how I feel. He says, I didn't do anything with it. I have the original amount. I have what you gave me. I kept it safe. I protected it. It's not that I didn't. I loved, I loved what you gave me. So I kept it for myself. Now, the king's response, he's not flattered by that. He doesn't say, you, you love the treasure I gave you so much that you just protected it and held on to it and hoarded it and kept it for yourself. That is so, that's so sweet. It, it, meant, it really meant that much to you. That's not his response. It says that he roared. Yes. He, you wicked servant. What have you done? He didn't just cost himself. He cost other people that he didn't share it with and invest it with. It wasn't just about him, you wicked servant. How could you be so short-sighted? Don't you see there's other people that were depending on you doing something with what I entrusted you with? Don't you understand? I gave you that instruction, not for your own sake, but for the sake of other people. That there's coming a time where people will have to give an account that they knew the gospel, they received the treasure, and they were saved themselves, but they were so satisfied and comfortable that they let themselves become stagnant. When you and I get saved, it's not an excuse just to be satisfied and to plateau and to hoard it to ourselves and be so comfortable. I'm so glad I'm saved. I'm so glad I'm not like those wicked people. I'm so glad I'm not like those drug addicts. I'm so glad I'm not like those perverts and just hoard it to our, ourselves. That we're not saved to become stagnant. We're saved to become servants, to begin to serve others, to begin to serve the Lord, that we would never hear that rebuke. You wicked servant. What do you do? I trusted you. I gave you the most precious thing yes. and you did nothing with it. You know, knowing the Lord is precious. It is something to hold on to and cherish. It's good to know the Lord. It's wonderful to know Jesus. It's so wonderful to be able to come into his presence like we did just a minute ago to lift our voices and to sing. Like Pastor Jonathan said, it's not just words on the screen. It's just coming out of my heart. I can just sing, God, I love you. You're so wonderful. You're so good to me. Not because that's how the song goes that's written, 
by someone else. It's the one that I'm writing as, I, as I'm singing. It's just flowing. out. It's so wonderful to know the Lord. Amen. It's good to know God. It's good to be his child, to be his son, to be his daughter. Like Psalm 103 says, may I never forget his benefits. May I never, ever let it slip my mind how wonderful it is to be the Lord. It's good. We've got to keep that stirred up in our hearts. It's so good to know the Lord. Because if you're not excited about knowing God, you're, you're going to be very hesitant to lead somebody else into a relationship that you're pretty dissatisfied with yourself. You've got to keep focused. It is so good to know God. So there's a danger sometimes. Those of us that have been serving the Lord for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, sometimes you can forget how awful it was not knowing the Lord. You can just begin to take for granted. It is so good to serve God. It's so wonderful to know him. May I never forget the benefits. He forgives all of my sins. He forgives me. I can be clean. He's so gracious and kind. He forgives all of my sins. He heals all of my diseases. He redeems my life from destruction. He crowns me with loving kindness and tender mercies. He renews my youth. I mean, so many wonderful benefits. It's so good to belong to the Lord. What a blessing to serve him. Let, let me read you the 23rd Psalm. Psalm 23, we'll just read the whole thing. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. Just think about the benefits of having the Lord as your shepherd. If God is your shepherd, what kind of incredible blessing that really is. The Lord is my shepherd. Well, what's that mean? Here's what it means. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Think about those blessings. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. I shall not lack. He is a provider that I get to rest in green meadows. He provides rest. He renews my strength to have your strength renewed. You don't have to wear out. Your strength can get more and more and more. God blesses you. He protects you. He comforts you. He feeds you. He nourishes you. He loves you. Goodness and mercy, his unfailing love will follow you all the days of every single day. You can know that what's tracking you down is God's goodness, his love, his mercy, his blessing, and you can look forward. I'm going to live in the house of the Lord forever. What an incredible blessing to know God. To have God as your shepherd is so wonderful. Is there one of those blessings that you'd be okay separating yourself from? Not me. I, I I can't imagine life without those blessings. I, what would I, I don't know what I would do without the Lord leading me. I, I wouldn't want to give up one of those blessings without him protecting me. I, I mean, I wouldn't want to, I would not want to live without knowing God is protecting me. Not knowing the rest and the peace of having fellowship with him. Not having my strength renewed. I would not want to try to live this life in my own strength. I, I couldn't do it. Not having him feed and protect and nourish me. I mean, that's just a, a few short verses, but I mean, we could elaborate on those blessings for hours and hours and hours. How good it is when God is your shepherd. I wouldn't want to give up one of those blessings. 
But there's people who live their life without any of those blessings. They don't know, they don't know the shepherd. Jesus said, I am the good, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and they know me. I, I call them by name. I lead them and I guide them. He's the good shepherd. But some people live without any of those blessings in their life. Let me read you from Matthew chapter nine. Matthew chapter nine. And this is, this is the heart of this series and what we're talking about. I wanna read it to you from the amplified version. Matthew chapter nine, starting in verse 35. It says, and Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news, the gospel of the kingdom and curing all kinds of disease and every weakness and infirmity. When he saw the throngs, talking about crowds of people, multitudes, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with pity and sympathy for them. Some translations say compassion. He's, he's moved with his love for them because they were bewildered, harassed, and distressed, and dejected, and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. They, they didn't have any of the benefits of having a shepherd. So when Jesus saw them, and how, how confused they are, how miserable they are, how sad they are, how, how frustrated they are, living their life, not even really knowing what life is about, trying to figure things out on their own, just trying to exist, just going from one meal to another, just seeing how dejected these people are. He said, you know what this reminds me of? You know what these people are like to me? To me, I look at these crowds of people, and Jesus said to me, it's, it's, like, it's like they're sheep that they don't have someone to take care of them. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They're helpless. They can't, they can't lead themselves. They can't figure things out on their own. They're in desperate need of someone to help. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is indeed plentiful, but the laborers are few. So he looks out, he sees them. It's like these people, they're like, they're like sheep without a shepherd. He turns to his disciples and he says, the harvest, guys, guys, the harvest is it's so plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now, when he says harvest, he's just, he's talking sheep. He's talking grain. What in the world, what in the world is he talking about? When he talked about harvest, he's talking about people. Let me read you from John chapter four, starting in verse 35. Jesus says this, you know, the saying four months between planting and harvest but I say, wake up, look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages and the fruit they harvest, what, what is it? What are they harvesting? Is people brought into eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. Let me read that again. I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages and the fruit they harvest is people, people brought to eternal life. So when Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, what's he talking about? He's talking about people. He's talking about people. He says there's so many people, so many people that need a shepherd, so many people that are lost, so many people that are trying to do this thing on their own, so many people that are vulnerable, so many people that are dejected and confused. You, you know, that wasn't just for that one afternoon when he was walking around with his disciples. When he looked out and saw those crowds, the harvest is still plentiful. The harvest is still plentiful. I, I read this week that there are 7.8 billion, with a B, people on the earth right now. 
That's a lot of people. That's a big harvest. 7.8 billion people. And the estimates are that about 70% of those people don't know the Lord. 30% claim to be Christians. And we could question that. But 30% claim to be, claim to be Christians. That means 5.5 billion people by their own admission right now are on their way to hell. 5.5 billion people. That is a lot of people. That is a lot. That is a ton. The harvest, the harvest is indeed plentiful. 5.5 billion people. You know that breaks the heart of God when his number one concern is making sure that people make heaven and there's 5.5 billion people right now that if they were to die right now, they, they would spend eternity separated from the Lord. That breaks the heart of God. I, I know talking in billions is a little bit to wrap our, our minds around, but locally, within 15 miles of this building, there are 130,000 people that live within 15 miles. 130,000 people. So even talking locally, talking Harrison County, the surrounding area, the harvest is plentiful. There are lots and lots and lots of people that need to be told about Jesus. But Jesus didn't just say, he didn't just say it's plentiful. It'd be one thing if it was abundant. He didn't just say there's lots of people. He also said that they are ripe. The harvest is ripe. People are, people are ready. Do you know people are ready to come to know God? People are ready to respond to an opportunity to know Jesus. People were made for relationship with Jesus. We're not trying to convince them to do something that they weren't designed to do. They know something's missing. They're searching for something. They go to all kinds of crazy extents trying to satisfy, trying to find the fulfillment when they were made for relationship with God. That's why they were designed, so that they are right. They want to know God, whether they realize it or not. They want a relationship with God. They want Jesus as their Savior. What they're lacking is the opportunity to receive him as Savior. The harvest, the harvest is ripe. People were designed for relationship. Who would not want to be unconditionally loved? Who would not want to know that they're on their way to heaven instead of on their way to hell? Who wouldn't want to have a shepherd like the one that we're talking about to care for us and lead us? Who, who doesn't want that? Everyone wants to be loved like that. Everyone wants to be cared for like, like that. The harvest is ripe, and it's a harvest that we are well able to bring in to God's glory, to bring to the husbandman who's waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. We're able to do it. Don't let numbers or the vastness intimidate us. You know, using those numbers, 7.8 billion people, uh, estimated 2.3 Christians. Do you know if every person that claims to be Christian would just lead one person to the Lord in a year? It's one person, which doesn't, doesn't sound too aggressive to me. It's when one person to the Lord in the span of a year that the entire earth could be saved in two years. The harvest is ripe. It's right. We, we could take it. We could take it. The harvest is indeed plentiful. The problem is, Jesus said, the problem is the laborers are few. The, the workers are few. I read a statistic this week that said that 80% of Christians have never led anyone to the Lord. 80% of Christians have no fruit. 
80% of Christians are like the man that we read about in Luke chapter 19. That if they had to give an account, they'd say, well, no, I, mean, I enjoyed the treasure. I liked having it. That they would be identified as a wicked servant. That they lose what they do have. That they would disappoint the master. 80% of Christians that have never led anyone to the Lord. The, the harvest is indeed plentiful. The problem is no one wants to do anything. No one wants to invest. Nobody wants to sow. Nobody wants to, to take a step of boldness and tell somebody about Jesus. That, that's the problem. What kind of impact could we have as a church family if we'd become aggressive? We'd make ourselves available. We'd start to evangelize, realize the reason I'm in that job, the reason I live in that neighborhood, the reason God's planted me in Harrison County or in this region is I'm here to make impact. There's people that God has divinely positioned me and given me the ability to bring them in to the kingdom of God, that we would enlist ourselves as harvesters. That's what Jesus is saying. He says that the problem is the laborers. The laborers are few. Verse 38, so, so pray to the Lord of the harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to force out and thrust laborers into his harvest. Jesus says, sees them like they're like sheep without a shepherd. Tells his disciples that the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. So guys, this is what we need to do. We need to pray. Guys, we need to pray. We need to pray for people that would go out, people that would move beyond themselves, people would quit being selfish, people would quit being stagnant, people would get out there and work and labor in the harvest. People would be able to take that step. We need to pray to the Lord of the harvest. And he says that they would be forced out, reading from the Amplified Version, forced out and thrust. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to force out and thrust laborers into his harvest. Force, not, not grabbing them by the ear and marching them out there and making them do it. But filled with the compassion of the Lord. Filled with the Spirit of God. Like, like Paul when he said, the love of God compels me. I'm compelled. Like Jeremiah when he said, I can't keep quiet. His words like a fire shut up in my bones. I, I've got to proclaim. I've got to speak it out. That we'd begin to see people the way that God sees them. Love them like God loves them. That we'd be thrust out, not out of sense of duty or obligation, but by the love of God. I, I, I value people and I've got to give them an opportunity. We'd be thrust out, moved out of our comfort zones into the harvest. That we'd become laborers. We'd become workers. What moved the heart of Jesus in this passage? He saw the people like sheep without a shepherd. It says that he was moved. What moved him? Now, I know my father wants me to do something about this. He sent me down here with like a, an assignment. He didn't say that sense of obligation moved him. He was moved with compassion. What moved him was love. Oh, these people, these people are too special. They're too valuable. They need a shepherd. So, so we're going to pray in a couple of minutes that we would have hearts like God, hearts like Jesus, that, that Jesus didn't see people. When he looked out there and saw that what a mess they were, he didn't see, man, this is a problem. These people need to be corrected. They need to be fixed. He, he didn't see them that way. He saw them as valuable, as valuable. These people are valuable. That's the way we need to see them. Because the way that we perceive situations, the way we perceive people will determine what we do about it or if we do anything. So the way that you view things determines how you do things. The way that you view things 
That's what's going to determine how you do things. How I view it will determine how I do it. So we need to see people not as problems to be fixed. We need to see people not as just messes that they just need, they need help, aggravations that something needs to be done about. So we're not, we're not just trying to, to help them, not just trying to fix them. If we see them as valuable, then we'll begin to serve them. We'll begin to serve them. They're not just a problem to be dealt with. They're valuable and they need to be served. Jesus came with that kind of attitude. He said the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to lay down his life and be the servant of all. Now that, that mission statement doesn't conflict with what we read in Luke 19, verse nine, where he came to seek and save the lost. They're, they're one and the same. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. How was he gonna carry that out? By positioning himself as a servant, by serving people, to serve people. So we're, we're gonna pray. We're gonna pray that God would give us that heart, that we would enlist ourselves as laborers. Father, help me to see people the way that you see them. Father, would you forgive me would you forgive me for being selfish, for being a wicked servant, for being satisfied that I'm saved and not allowing it to go any further than that? We're gonna pray along those lines in just a minute. Let, let me read one last verse to you from Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30 says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life and he who wins souls is wise. He who wins souls is wise. So wisdom and soul winning are directly linked together, right? He who wins souls is wise. Are you with me? Those two things are linked. But then we could ask the question, which comes first? The wisdom or the soul winning? We know that they run parallel at some point. I believe we can apply it both ways. It is wise to make yourself a soul winner. If you decide you're going to win souls, it's wisdom to do that. It's shrewd because you know you're walking in obedience to the master. You know, Jesus said in John 4, we read it, the people who win souls are paid good wages. You know that you're positioning yourself for reward in eternity. You know you're carrying out the desires of the one who sustains you. So it's just wisdom. You're avoiding punishment by being obedient. It's wisdom to win souls. But I want to suggest that there's another application that he who, he who wins souls is wise in the sense that once you decide that you're going to win souls, God gives you supernatural wisdom to know how to go about winning those souls. That God will give you strategies. He'll give you insight. He gives a special allotment of wisdom to people who say, I'm going to begin to win souls in my neighborhood. Lord, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know what to say. Those are obstacles that we can talk about later in this series. They're things that keep people from doing it. I don't know what I would say. I don't know. That might be awkward. But if you just determine, God, I'm going to win those people at work. God, I'm going to win those neighbors. God, I'm going to win. my. I purpose my heart. I set my face like flint. I will have fruit. I will have something to bring to you. I will have something to show. I invested the treasure. Once you set your faith like that, once you decide, I am a soul winner, then you qualify yourself to receive a special allotment of supernatural wisdom to know how to carry it out. It wouldn't do you any good for God to give you that wisdom and know-how if you haven't purposed in your heart to do something with it. So the first step we take is, God, I'm winning souls. God, I'm going to do something. When I take that step, when I invite that person, when I strike up that conversation, Lord, I'm counting on you. Fill my mind. 
mind, fill my heart, fill my mouth with the right wisdom, that when I speak, it would be like Peter on the day of Pentecost, that he opened his mouth and he began to speak. I don't know that he had a sermon prepped. He stood up and he began to speak under the unction of the Holy Spirit. And whatever it was that came out of his mouth, it was effective because 3,000 people were brought into the kingdom and it pricked people's hearts. It was exactly what they needed to hear at that moment. God will do the same thing for you and me. There will be wisdom that flows with a desire to win souls. He who wins souls, that person is wise. It's impossible to be, even if you're not wise right now, you become a soul winner. It's, what the Bible, it's impossible to be a soul winner and not be a wise person. That's what the Bible says. You create wisdom. You put a draw on the wisdom of God when you set your heart to win souls. He who wins souls is wise. God will, God will match your passion to win souls with the creativity to do it. But if, you, if you're just waiting on the strategy, you'll be waiting a long time. Just go ahead and enlist yourself. God, I'm going after him. I'm going to do something. I'm doing something to win these people. So God, you better give me a good plan so I don't screw this thing up. I will be taking steps. You might as well give me the right steps. You might as well anoint me. And trust that he'll do it. Trust that he'll do it. Has God ever used you to say something and in the moment you thought, I'm such an idiot? And then later on you found out it was perfect. Just the right thing. Don't go by your own wisdom, your own mind. Trust, as I, as I take this step, I'm wise. I'm operating in wisdom. I'll, I'll, I'll say just the right thing. I'll do just the right thing. So the wisdom of God is operating. He who wins souls, he who wins souls is wise. God will match your passion for souls with the right wisdom, the right idea, the right strategies to carry it out. Well, that's this week's message. Thanks for joining us. To stay connected with us throughout the week, make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook. You can also watch previous week's services on our YouTube page.